Namaste, good evening. Uh, we start today's event uh, with an invocation to Bhagwan Ganesh and Ma Saraswati seeking their blessings. <coughs> Gajananam Bhuta Ganadi Sevitam Kapitta Jambu Palasara Bhakshitam Umasutam Soka Vinasakaranam Namami Vigneshwara Padapankajam Saraswati Namastupyam Varade Kama Rupini Vidyarambam Karishyami Siddhir Bhavatu Me Sada Siddhir Bhavatu Me Sada Siddhir Bhavatu Me Sada I take this opportunity to welcome you all for the first Indic Book Club event in Singapore. My name is Mahalakshmi and I'll be your host and host for the evening. Uh, I would just like to briefly tell you about the Indic Book Club. Indic Book Club seeks to bring about a renaissance by nurturing a network of public intellectuals and enabling them, enabling their transformation into leaders of cultural thought and expression. To achieve the task of Indic rejuvenation, the IBC has a dedicated governing board and editorial board comprising of academicians and well-known authors and we have conducted over uh, 50 Indic book club meetings all around India and also in the United States and New Zealand. Indic book club seeks to bring about eminent personalities in the field of arts, heritage, history, Indic history and dharma ecology together and this is the first in the series in Singapore. So today's event, today's program will be divided into two sessions. The first session will have a, a book launch followed by a free-flowing discussion on our Indic heritage past. I would now like to invite uh, Srimati Sahana Singh and Professor Makran Paranspe on stage. Ms. Uh, Srimati Singh is an engineer, writer and editor. <laughs> who writes on a variety of issues including water management, environment and Indian history. Her works have been published in Reader's Digest, Washington Post, Discovery Channel Asia among others and she has won several awards for journalism. She is a member of the Indian History Awareness and Research, a Houston-based think tank. Today she will be sharing with us, uh, reflecting on her Indic journey and reading out excerpts from her book titled The Educational Heritage of Ancient India. Professor Makran Paranspe needs no introduction, but I will still try to attempt one. He is a professor of English at JNU, a poet and a public intellectual. 
Professor Paranspe earned his master's and doctorate from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He is the author, the editor of over 40 books and 150 academic papers and articles. And his writings span a variety of issues. And if you see his uh, writings in the newspaper columns, one could get the scale of how he tries to break down complex ideologies and concepts into such simple language for a layman to understand. And that is why he is my intellectual hero. I always say that uh, every time I meet people. And I'm very happy that he's here with us today. Uh, now we will, I will hand over the floor to Sahana ji and Makran ji. Kind of. Hello, yes. hello. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mahalakshmi. That was a glowing introduction. I hope everybody can hear me clearly. Uh, so, Namaste, Swagatam. It is uh, very heartwarming for me to see a decent turnout for my book launch. Um, and uh, first of all, I need to uh, thank uh, Indic Book Academy and uh, uh, Indic Book Club and Indic Academy for uh, giving this platform to me and to authors like me. So, um, uh, Sri Harikiran Vaglamani, uh, thank you, sir, uh, for this opportunity. And uh, I'd also like to thank all the volunteers who have been working very hard for this uh, event. A big thank you. So, uh, and of course, it is an absolute privilege to have Dr. Makarand Paranjabe to launch my book. Um, so, Dr. Paranjabe, uh, I, I uh, admire him not just for his intellectual achievements, but uh, for the fact that he is very courageous and patient. Uh, so I remember that video of uh, Dr. Paranjape that went viral. I think many of you would have seen that. And he is surrounded by a crowd of booing students in GNU. And uh, he is uh, explaining to them that they need to see both sides of the argument and they need to get their facts right. I mean, I would have run away from them at the sight of that kind of booing, but he was right there convincing the mob. Uh, I don't know how much that mob understood of what you were saying, but uh, that video certainly inspired a lot of us. So, uh, Dr. Par... Yeah, the light, okay. <laughs> I'm trying not to look at that light, yeah. So, Dr. Paranjapay represents those teaching traditions. Can you hear me? Yeah. So, to me, you re represent those teaching traditions of uh, ancient India that my book writes about, is, or what I've written about is about professors like Dr. Pananjabe. So, uh, to tell you a bit about my journey, in the last uh, 17 years, I have mainly been writing about water, wastewater, environment, that's what I used to write about. And uh, I've been to many conferences, water conferences around the world, and uh, most of the time I will be talking about how uh, age water resources efficiently, India needs to do better at water management and so on. But somewhere along I used to wonder that, you know, we, we must have had a great educational system because we, uh, we Indians made the earliest sippers and then we made those marvelous uh, rainwater harvesting structures and we had planned cities, uh, we had all those architectural marvels. So I thought there must have been a, uh, an educational system which uh, has probably fallen apart. So that was there at the back of my mind. 
uh, and, uh, I used to be interested in history more or less, but uh, until 2000, uh, there was a kind of mindset that I had. I used to believe that I had studied in school, all the history books, whatever they said, I thought that's cast in stone because anything which is printed, I thought a lot of due diligence goes into it and verification, cross-verification before it goes into print. So I used to believe in the Aryan invasion theory. The Aryans brought all the good things that India has. And then much later I thought the British God gave us a modern education system, they gave us railways, they gave us printing press, electricity and so on. That's the way I thought it was. Uh, and then um, uh, in 2000, that's when I met Dr. N.S. Rajaram. So he was a childhood friend of my uh, mother. And he introduced me to the works uh, that he had co-authored along with Dr. David Crawley. And, uh, and then those books simply unleashed a new way of looking at our past. So um, then I realized that most of the things that I thought were facts were actually based on very flimsy evidence on assumptions by just one guy or maybe two guys and that had become fact. And then there was a lot of misinterpretation of Sanskrit texts uh, that I came to know of. And um, there were words like Arya, Dasa, you know, they had been totally misinterpreted. So, uh, so that set me on my journey and then I read uh, books by Dr. Subhash Kaat, um, Dr. Nikhil Danino, uh, Raji Malhotra and other eminent uh, intellectuals. But I still thought that um, history books need to be written by PhDs in history uh, or social studies. I never imagined that I would write a book on history. Then came a time when I realized that the PhDs in the... Uh, Too much of echo. So then I realized that the PhDs in uh, social studies were a part of the problem. <laughs> So, uh, and then uh, another life-changing uh, event was when we moved to the U.S. about five years ago. So, uh, uh, there, there were a couple of triggers which made me start writing in a, with an Indic perspective. So, the first thing was that article which appeared in New York Times, uh, and that article was an obnoxious article, which said that India's sanitation problem and uh, the, the problem of open defecation was caused by uh, scriptures. The scriptures of uh, the Hindu scriptures had led to this problem of sanitation. And I was absolutely shocked because these shastras of ours, they talk about shaucha, purity, and here they were being linked to just the opposite. So that was one trigger. And then the other one was the textbook that my daughter had in school, uh, history textbook in US. And that uh, it had very little on India. And whatever it had was all about, uh, you know, how India was some kind of an inegalitarian hell where there is oppression of upper caste, uh, uh, the lower caste being oppressed by the upper caste, then men oppressing women, all kinds of oppression going around. And this was presented in sharp contrast to uh, the modern Western societies which were moving towards egalitarianism. That was the picture presented. So, um, so then I was thinking, okay, I need to write about this. I also need to write. And that's when I met a group of intellectuals in Houston, uh, members of uh, Indian History Awareness and Research, brilliant people who just, it was such, such a joy to have met them, Dr. Raj Vedam, uh, Subroto Gangopadhyay, Sharat Menon, many others. And then we discussed and debated, mulled and mused, and slowly the Eurocentric filters that I had started coming off, that I realized that 
I, you know, I came to know that dharma is not religion, uh, murti puja is not idol worship, uh, and so on. So then we, uh, as we talked, uh, then the ideas came along and then I said, I, I'm going to write a book on the educational uh, heritage. So can I tell them a little bit about my book? Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, my book takes you to, uh, to a time when India was the educational capital of the world. So it was a time when uh, the whole country was covered with universities from top to bottom, left to right, everywhere. And we, I had only heard about Nalanda and uh, Takshashila when I started researching. But then I came to know that there were scores of forest universities, uh, uh, this what you call the temple universities, then uh, Viharas, Agraharas, Mathas, I mean a variety of educational institutes. And uh, so if a, when a child, uh, when a student finished basic education, there were a plethora of institutes to choose, uh, depending on whether he or she wanted to study the Vedas or, uh, you know, the logic, uh, maybe, you know, shipbuilding, uh, music, anything. There were institutes all over the land. And they used to travel. I was astonished to find that there were so many professors who uh, had traveled from the south to the north, from the east to the west. So there was a lot of mobility among the both the professors and the students. And I, I learned that there was a rush to gain an education in India. Uh, so people came, you know, they came by ship, they came walking, they, uh, they crossed mountains. They took so much trouble just to gain admission in the top universities of India. Uh, and some of them uh, almost lost their lives. For example, Fahia talks about what, what he went through to get admission in Nalanda. Uh, so, and then um, I the students came from China, from uh, West Asia, from Indonesia, uh, Japan, Korea. Basically, whichever part of the world was civilized uh, at that time wanted to send its top students to study in India. So that was India at that time. Uh, and then I was absolutely fascinated by the debating traditions of ancient India. So I came to know that, you know, the quality of uh, debate. So they, uh, the, the kings used to hold debate tournaments and uh, debate was a part of the, uh, the studies in uh, all, most of the universities. So you had to be a good debater if you wanted to pass with honors. And the quality of debate was such that uh, uh, you had to be thorough with your opponent's point of view. So a good debater was, if you read all the books where uh, the, the, you know, the, the Tarka Shastra, the other books on, on uh, debate and logic, so they tell you about how a good debater needs to be able to argue from his opponent's point of view first before he can take him on in a debate, which means he has to read all the books written by the opponent, he has to completely understand it, and then only he, he has the right to go and debate with him. That was the kind of culture. And so I think it was this debating culture which gave rise to democracy in India. Probably the, the we have right until the village level, we have panchayats, we have democracy. So that is probably all coming from that uh, tradition of debate. Um, and then my book talks about how uh, all this slowly came to an end with the Muslim invasions. Uh, a number of institutes were destroyed. This was followed by the British rule, which again did away with uh, uh, you know, the basic schooling system which was in place. It was one of the finest uh, basic schooling system that we had, if you read about how it was in uh, Dharampal's book, The Beautiful Tree. All that got wiped off and, uh, and then that's how it, it started making sense to me that this is how that, that glorious time 
uh, has has what we see today is a caricature of that time you know um, so one of the things i get to hear a lot is that why are you talking about uh, the glorious past right um, and uh, and then why are you talking about its destruction by invaders you know you should look to the future talk about the future what we need to do in the future so i have a problem with that kind of thinking because i mean the past the present and the future they are all on a continuum it doesn't make sense to say that you know they are separate they are all connected so whatever is happening today is the consequence of what happened or the events that happened yesterday and what's going to happen tomorrow is the consequence of what's happening today and what has happened before that so it doesn't make sense to you know just ignore the past and then go forward uh, with eyes closed so i feel we should use our past our heritage as a motivation as a motivating force to understand today's problems and solve them that's what i think and uh, before i end i just want to uh, cite michael crichton whose quote really applies uh, to india so he said uh, if you don't know history then you don't know anything you are like a leaf that doesn't know it is part of a tree thank you formally launch this wonderful book after which i will say a few words about it and Thank you Shana ji and thank you all for giving me this opportunity to come here and participate in the launch of this wonderful book. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the book in a in a moment but before that I want to thank Anurag ji and also congratulate the moving spirit behind the Indic Book Club Hari Kiran Vadlamani ji who's standing there and uh, he is uh, one of the most uh, I find him one of the most uh, should I say inspiring gifted and also utterly modest uh, human beings you know uh, deeply committed to the cause and yet you know doesn't let his ego interfere and uh, that's the way that he brings together all of us and uh, just a few months ago Shanaji I was uh, in Houston and I went to Dr Bandapadha's house and I met the other members of the group 
Uh, many of whom are actually, uh, you know, uh, at least one or two of whom are actually PhDs and professors, but she's beaten everyone. She's the first one to come out with the book. Uh, and the great thing about this book, I've read it from cover to cover, is that it is so readable and it is so, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so just as you heard her speak, the book is also very direct, it's extremely readable, and uh, it is deeply informative. And it's not at all a polemical book, you know, uh, in spite of or because of what she may have said so far. There's no overt attempt to uh, try and make uh, a political or an ideological claim in this book. It's more of a corrective. And it's the kind of book that everyone will benefit from reading because we have the bits and pieces. Everybody's heard of Nalanda, but we see it as a one-off thing. We haven't actually uh, come to understand India as a knowledge society, which it was for two or three thousand years. Uh, and uh, it's only when you read books like this that you begin to see a network of institutionalized promotion of knowledge, which is what we need to understand, despite the many kingdoms or despite the waxing and waning contours of empires, the fact of the matter was that India was a cultural, uh, social, intellectual uh, and civilizational territory which was deeply interconnected and scholars and uh, knowledge seekers from all over the world flocked to India and also from India went to different parts you know, of this uh, uh, subcontinental entity. And I think this book documents that. And it also takes us through that story historically and brings us to the present times. I am going to talk a little bit about the present and the future in a moment. But I also want to take this occasion to reflect on, uh, you know, what we mean by heritage itself. Somehow, uh, you know, as soon as this book uh, sort of came into my hands, suddenly I'm sort of... Uh, it's like heritage is sort of uh, um, seeking me out wherever I go. It's uh, sort of popping up in unusual places. I was in Kuala Lumpur uh, before I came here, and there is an Indian person there who has uh, a huge plot of land, uh, about an acre, right in the heart of the city, in the heart of KL Central, and he wants to use a portion of this to start an India Heritage Center. And he wants to tell these stories of, uh, of the different uh, groups and uh, communities and uh, people speaking different languages, following different professions from different parts of uh, the subcontinent who came to this part of the world. But he wants to start the story way back, you know, around the Sangam times, you know. And uh, these are stories that haven't been properly told. Uh, for instance. So what I'm trying to say is that there's suddenly this huge interest in heritage and what it really means. And I was, as I said, just thinking about this casually, uh, not uh, in a systematic fashion. And we all know that the word heritage simply means what we pass on and what we've inherited, right? It's a word that comes into the English language via French a few hundred years ago. But uh, I was also deeply interested to see how it has these opposing meanings and dimensions, which is what I want to talk about for a couple of minutes before coming back to this book. 
Uh, okay. Uh, you see, on the one hand, our heritage is a species heritage. It's what the whole human species has inherited genetically. It's a part of our genetic code because the genetic code also contains knowledge, you know, of all kinds. So in a way, it is a species knowledge. It's not necessarily, you know, split up into communities or so-called races, religions, countries. And this is something you get if you look at it from a broader perspective, from the scientific perspective. Even if you read a book like uh, The Selfish Gene by, uh, by Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, how there is this impulse to pass on things from one generation to another, which was taken, uh, you know, there's an interesting take on this in a film called Lucy, which stars uh, Scarlett Johansson, if you've seen the film where she in the end becomes a disk, uh, you know, a pen drive, where, you know, but that's a funny part of it. But, so you see, there is this impulse to pass things on, on the one hand. But how do you then explain the impulse to destroy everything, you know? So there is the other side to this. Uh, and there, the, you know, if you even look at a good dictionary, one of the uh, meanings of the word heritage is actually the covenant of the chosen people. Uh, uh, so heritage really means the chosen people, you know, with their uh, God, with that monotheistic or monothetical God. And this explains the impulse of, of in some sense, uh, you know, destroying things uh, which do not fit into that paradigm, you know. And this is what I'm trying to say, that if you think about modern ideas of heritage, They've all come to us from the West, including the UNESCO's quite laudatory, I must say, a project of saving world heritage through identifying these monuments. But please remember what's really happening. First you destroy something, and then you preserve it. So only those things which are worth preserving, which actually your ancestors have destroyed, if, if you understand what I'm trying to say. So there is an impulse to destroy, and then there's the modern impulse to try to preserve. So in a sense, the destruction is the prelude to the preservation. And so many cultures, communities, races even, all over the world were destroyed when they came in contact with other groups of people, systematically. And then some of these people got modernized and woke up and said, you know what, we shouldn't be destroying everything. And then they preserved. And in the in a sense, uh, so to speak, uh, reverse 180 degree turn, the secularized, uh, uh, you know, uh, you might say globalized, secularized modernity, what it then did is use precisely that colonial past to actually take things from all parts of the world and bring them to the West, which is going to sort of nicely segue to what Anuragji does in a few minutes. But you'll see that the heritage of different parts of uh, uh, you know, the destroyed parts of the world is now available only in the museums and the metropolitan centers, you know, of the so-called first world. So you see, uh, so this is the paradox. So in other words, on the one hand, heritage means the impulse to pass on something. But it also seems to mean a very strong impulse to destroy everything that doesn't somehow meet the approval, either theological or ideological. Because, as I said, one kind of heritage destroyers were 
uh, were fueled or justified or legitimated by theology, but another kind by ideology. That's why you had the great leap forward, the cultural revolution, where everything was destroyed, you know. So theology and ideology are the great destroyers of heritage on the one hand, okay. Now, where does that put us? Us meaning Indic people. Because, you see, we have living heritage. So this is the difference between those who want to preserve what's already been destroyed. But what about our heritage which is living? And in that sense, we should re-theorize heritage in terms of, uh, you know, the transmissions that go on every day. Of course, everyone has living heritage. Don't misunderstand me. But for us, when we've not had the destructive impulse, uh, and we've had the conservative impulse in some sense, our whole approach to our heritage is different. And therefore, uh, now I'm going to come back to the book, because I think that if, uh, you know, India as a knowledge society has been, and even today I did some studies uh, or research on this matter, and, you know, the so-called third world, so many thousands of people have been educated in India, you know, through ICCR and other fellowships, a story which hasn't been properly told. And this is, in a very interesting sense, the obverse of the so-called elite in India who've all been educated abroad. So, uh, you know what's happened to us in India today, that our education system, higher education, has been systematically undermined, if not destroyed. All we do is politics, especially in humanities and social sciences, so that our best students go abroad and pay sometimes, especially at the undergrad level, to be educated abroad. So we have created a system where we are exporting, in a sense, our most talented youngsters. And instead of, uh, you know, re-energizing India and making it a knowledge hub where we can uh, actually, you know, offer quality education uh, at a very at a fraction of the cost, we are, we are doing just the opposite, you know. So this is where a book like this becomes important, because if you know that you've been a knowledge hub and you want to do it again, at least you need that sense of uh, self-confidence and the stories. You know, I'll just give you one more example. Uh, you know, how many manuscripts do we have in India? The manuscript mission last year finished a catalog, 2000 and 16 in April, and there's more than four and a half million recorded manuscripts. There are many more that have not been identified, cataloged, and recorded. And of these, two and a half million manuscripts are in Sanskrit alone. So despite about a thousand years of different kinds of colonization, we remained a knowledge society. And instead, today, all we are doing is speak not of competence, but of various kinds of entitlement. And instead of building at the base of the pyramid a system, and an, I mean an ecosystem, where everyone has a chance to learn, we deny most people that chance. And then later, at the top of the system, we tinker and try to compensate and thereby actually, you know, force a number of people to go out and pay very high fees and lose our foreign exchange, almost four billion dollars is spent every year, that's worth, you can create 500 JNUs with that kind of money. And, uh, you know, we have many sort of thoughts, all of us I'm sure have, but may I now sort of uh, invite uh, Nuragji, until then, 
May I recommend this book to all of you? Please buy it and also share it with your kids because it's an extremely readable book. Uh, it doesn't have uh, Anuragi, please, please, please. You know, it, it's it's got no jargon. She tells the story as it is, direct, and uh, it's a good read. It's extremely informative, and in fact, uh, we don't need more professional historians. We need lots of such books, you know, which are readable by uh, educated, uh, you know, thinking and concerned uh, people all over the world. So, congratulate you. Uh, uh, and we all join you in uh, uh, wishing this book uh, a wonderful and a very successful journey in the real world. Congratulations. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Uh, Anurag Saxena. Anurag ji is a heritage activist and runs the India Pride project of which you will see some glimpses right now. Uh, that works on bringing back stolen uh, Indian heritage and he is passionate about Indian heritage and culinary history and has published articles in the Economic Times, Sunday Guardian among others and has been featured on BBC, Doordarshan and among everything man's world. So, <laughs> so uh, let's now hear it from Anurag ji. Just quickly, Arun, before you start, I'm neither as articulate as Makranji or Sahana ji. So, I'm just kind of giving away my time to this video. Um, yeah, if you could. And then uh, we'll quickly start off with the conversations. I'm from Singapore and I'm part of a secret project that's bringing back Indian heritage home. So secret that this is the first time we're ever publicly speaking about it. Treasures have been looted for decades and centuries, and we are working really hard with volunteers, governments across the board to bring them back. But to really understand what we do today, we'd have to go back a few thousand years to the Brihadeshwara temple complex on the banks of the river Kaveri. Now, this was built by Rajaraja Chola, one of India's biggest uh, dynasties, and it was so cool back in its day. Not just did it employ priests, but it, it, it employed dancers, scholars, authors, philosophers, what have you. You know, in a way, it was kind of like the ink talks of its time. Yeah? The temple was so amazing that in 1954, when the Indian government issued a thousand rupee note, they put a picture of the temple on it. This is how parts of the complex look today. The gods lay in ruins and dogs walk around where people like you and me should. But why did this happen? The reason is really simple. The Nataraja, the main deity from the Garbhagriha or the Sanctum Sanctorium, was stolen and smuggled out of India a few years back. And this was one of many hundreds and thousands of antiques and treasures that, that have been looted. I won't get into the details of how they did it, but raiders came in from New York, handpicked these statues, maps, manuscripts, what have you, smuggled them out of India, made fake papers in Hong Kong, sold them through a charity, through, through an auction house in London, and the statue ended up bought by the government of Australia, not knowing that it was stolen, and placed in their national museum. Now, a quick couple of things about being born Indian, right? One is that they don't let you ask questions in school. So you kind of have to wait till middle age till you start asking questions. Two, every Desi kid wants to be James Bond. So some of us basically got together and really started asking questions, right? 
who's stealing the statues, why, you know, how are they getting sold, who's buying them, but most importantly, can we really ever get them back? We did whatever any self-respecting investigator would do. We went to Google, and we went on Twitter, and we started blogging. We, we, we started connecting with volunteers across the world and saying, hey, listen, you live in Sydney. We think there's a statue there. Could you take high-res pictures and send it out to us so we can make a match? We reached out to people in Germany. We reached out to people in India and really started getting the whole momentum going. Slowly, slowly, we had the best of the, of the museums and art galleries across the world realizing that they're sitting on what we call chori ka mal or stolen stuff. The picture of that handsome young man you see on the right is my good friend Vijay Sundaresan, and he was the researcher that found the trail of the Nataraja. He and I are not alone. There's Donna Yates, there's Kirit Mankoti right here in Bombay, there's Jason Felch, and there's a whole bunch of people that are saying, hey, let's, let's just put our time and effort. And then magic starts to happen when the right intent gets together, right? First, we had international media that started waking up to the fact. You know, Sunday Times and The Guardian and, you know, New York Times and what have you. Everyone started talking about it and started pressurizing their own governments. Now, everything was working well. We had, we had uh, museums realizing that they need to give back stuff. We had... Uh, you know, the, the villain getting caught, uh, media talking about us. But then, the statues weren't coming back as yet, and that's what we started working with. And government has a huge role to play, and we're really, really thankful that the, government, government, that the current government realizes its duty. Something magical happened in September last year. Tony Abbott... Thank you. Tony Abbott, the Australian Prime Minister, came, came to visit uh, our Prime Minister and brought back the Nataraja, as you can see. Notice how our Prime Minister's smile now changes with every moving picture, yeah? So that's, that's when the avalanche started, followed by the Canadian Prime Minister who gave back some stuff when our Prime Minister was there. And very recently, Angela Merkel came to India and brought back the Guruga. Thank you. The real joy, the real joy is not with, you know, with the political victory or the geopolitical victory of India. The real joy is this, right? A village that's lost its God has really lost its heart. This is how the village looks today once the statues come back. Now, this is just a drop. Where are we now? 200 plus statues. There's 70,000 that are out there. We don't know when we'll get them, when we'll not. With help, we will. And just, it's not just a volume game, just in terms of value. Here is one raid made in New York on one art dealer, and they had caught $100 million worth of antiques. Just so you know how big the, big the game is. Now, for centuries, we've seen the destruction of culture. The Nazis did it to Jewish art. There are religious wars taking place all over the world. People are going at it with hammers and chisels and tongs and destroying it as a part of a cultural conquest. When hammers and tongs are not enough, they, they just drop bombs and destroy heritage. What's different about us in India here is this. We're not losing our herit heritage to either terrorists or to conquerors. We're losing it to our own people who are doing it for plain, simple greed, nothing else. The question you all have to ask yourself today is, are you willing to, to just sit by and let this happen?
Thank you. Okay, for those of you who know me um, personally, I've been married 16 years, so I'm not a man of many words anymore. So, um, you know, so very simply to answer the question. You know, um, there's a very interesting background to this. So, like with Sahanaji, I grew up, you know, so I'm an ICSC product. So, a lot of my current value system and ideology. Um, is almost post-education. So, uh, a, a lot of my education happened after I got out of college and B school and CA and all of that. Um, and one of the things, uh, one of the things that that intrigued me all the time was uh, I, I first moved out of India in 1998. Why is it that we are not able to take care of you know a, a, a thousand-year-old fort the way a 50-year-old building is being respected or well-maintained or whatever in the US. And, and that kind of question kind of uh, uh, egged me for a long time. Which brought me to the subject of heritage, heritage recovery, etc., which for me is important because these are gifts from our ancestors. Right? I mean, so let me ask this question. How many of us have a photo frame in their house of their parents or children? How many of us don't? Right? So there's one person in this audience or two. Clearly you all remember what your parents look like. Clearly you all remember what your children look like. Why would you then need an image? Why? Because it's a remnant of a point in time or a memory that you want to cherish. And most of our artifacts were like that. Unfortunately, what was happening in India for a very long time is you had a whole bunch of academic researchers that were only whining about the fact that Artifacts have gotten stolen. No, oh, this is from my village in Tamil Nadu. This is from my taluk in Bihar, blah, blah, blah. Why is the government not doing anything? Why is the culture ministry so lackadaisical? You know, ASI sucks. And, you know, so essentially they were being Kejriwals within their own domains. <laughs> Ki, you know, I am cool. Why? Because I have the ability to write a letter to the editor and say something else is broken. Um, so that's when we started the whole India Pride project and said, listen, let's enough of enough of research, enough of, you know, whining, bitching, what have you. Let's actually figure out a way to get these back. And it's, it's been quite a, quite an interesting journey. I think, um, you know, Sahana Ji comes at the whole issue from a very cerebral point of view. I was just having a discussion with the, with the gentleman from Hindi society, why we opted for our kids to learn Hindi, because it's, it's about continuity. Um, it's the same thing with, with Indian heritage. Um, it's, there's a slightly different different angle right now, which I don't want to spend too much time on. Um, I'm not sure if many of you know that Heritage is now one of the revenue sources for ISIS and Daesh, which is the most which is the most recent emerging angle. So, like ISIS deals in uh, narcotics, like they deal in sex slaves, they also deal in, in stolen heritage, which is now making this particular subject catch traction in India much more than I would have wanted. Um, so, so more power. Uh, but yeah, hopefully many of you can join our journeys. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much, I guess, the introduction for the project. Well, so um, like Makranji said, we originally wanted to have a, a three-way discussion and at some point 
uh, invite the audience. Um, given the theme of today, we'd like it to be much more interactive. Three or four things you might want to talk about. Um, going back to Makranji's uh, area of expertise or background, um, you know, leftist ideology, JNU, specifically Marxism, uh, is it should be an interesting topic. And you know, I kind of love that topic because it usually agitates people on both sides of the spectrum, and flux and agitation is good. From Sahanaji's point of view, um, we could have conversations around the Nalanda University, um, or or broaden it a little bit. You know, pan out the camera um, to talk about uh, lost educational heritage. Um, from my perspective, we could have a conversation about lost cultural heritage. Um, so at this point, I, I guess I really wanted this to be very, very informal um, and open it out to any thoughts, questions, etc. Um, with the only constraint being, uh, please limit your thought to a few sentences or you know less than half a minute of a question because uh, you know we're really running behind on time. Yes. I had a question on your research. Did you see? I'm just curious to know, was there any research on the importance of Sanskrit in the past? And do you believe reviving Sanskrit in the present might be a great link to kind of getting the continue going in the future? Especially when you see countries like Germany and Canada quite heavily investing in the language. Uh, do you believe that might be a great way of continuing the momentum? Anyone in your yeah, Sanskrit, definitely. I mean, if you learn Sanskrit, then all those manuscripts that you mentioned, of course, it's not the same Sanskrit that uh, what is in those manuscripts would be old Sanskrit. Uh, but learning Sanskrit would be, uh, would enable you tremendously to uh, understand the ethos of that time. And, uh, you know, many of the, the, the words will actually tell you about uh, how the society was at that time. So if you want to know more about history, uh, it's good to know Sanskrit and also regional languages because there are many books written in regional languages which are translations of the original Sanskrit works. So Indian languages, if you learn Indian languages, you can you have better uh, position to know your past. Uh, so the simple answer is yes. But uh, you know the important thing is that Sanskrit and Sanskriti are linked up. So it's not that everybody must learn Sanskrit, but everybody must, within quotes, must learn Sanskriti. You see, and uh, it's a wonderfully put by Lokesh Chandraji, who said that, uh, you know, the string of pearls of Indian civilization is threaded on the language Sanskrit, right? In fact, uh, the kind of admixture, I mean, this is Tamil country in a manner of speaking, of Sanskrit and Tamil, Mani Praval, you know? So it's already so. But if you break the string, then all the pearls get scattered, which is exactly what colonialism did. So we can't, this is not a revivalist project, if uh, that's a bad word in some people's vocabulary. The fact is it's a restorative project because there was so much anti-Sanskrit. I'll give you a simple example about JNU. We taught every other language, Arabic, Persian, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Italian, French, German, Russian. I'll get breathless if I tell you all the languages in which we offered courses leading right up to the PhD. Of course English, Urdu, Hindi, but not Sanskrit. Till an English professor called Professor Kapil Kapoor started his center of Sanskrit studies. So you see, 
we are trying to restore the place of Sanskrit. And whatever rudimentary Sanskrit we already have in all our languages and in our unconscious, if you awaken it, you'll see Indian culture opening up in ways, in a myriad ways. And not just that, you'll see so many languages starting to make sense suddenly, just through the common roots. The etymological roots are so common, even between English and Sanskrit, that uh, I think we, we must pay some attention. Look, these rankings are a racket. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Yes, I, that's the second part of my response. It's a racket, but it's a meaningful racket because that is how you get students, paying students. But we are not. A, we don't want paying students. In fact, you know, so you see the paradox of India that. Uh, if you ramp up what you have, people will pay. But rankings don't matter to us because, you know, we're giving it away. And, and in fact, we are paying people to come and stay in places like JNU. But so, the Chinese know how to max this. So, they just look at everything that's required and fill in the blanks. They include a certain number of foreign faculty, certain number of foreign students, certain number of papers published in refereed journals, all of those things. And they're gradually waking up to it. But uh, we should also have these... Uh, so, in other words, before we try and hit the rankings and all of that, which we should, uh, we should first of all try and reform our education system. And who's going to bell the cat? Because it will involve many unpopular measures. But that is... we need to create uh, should I say, narrative traction, a force, so that there is the political will, because that will only come when there is a huge demand in society, and middle class people will have to speak up. And we are all divided along community and caste lines, so much so that everyone wants to be more backward than the other. Yeah, and even very forward and powerful communities, I don't need to name them, but you know who they are, you know, in, in Haryana, that side of India, Haryana, Rajasthan, in Maharashtra, and in Gujarat, these are dominant communities want to be included in the backward lists so that they continue to maintain their privileges. So we need to really think about what kind of society we want to create and what we mean by distributive justice, why should the current generation be punished for the sins of their ancestors and so forth, if at all those narratives of oppression and appeasement are what our dominant, uh, you know, culture is really about or are we going to create narratives of competence and uh, capability and, uh, uh, you know, different, uh, uh, should I say, encouragements and not entitlements, uh, you know. So we have to think very deeply and unfortunately our leadership, regardless of whichever party you espouse, they don't want to go there. It's like opening up a can of worms. Can I, can I just add, you know, a totally tangential point to all of this. Um, based on a real story from the time my wife and I were dating. So, she went um, 
So the Times of India took out a ranking in 2001, um, which, uh, which ranked her alma mater, which is I am Ahmedabad, as the second best B-school in Gujarat. Right. The first was Nirma Institute of Management. Right. So it's very interesting. So, you know, people who are in the scene know how pointless these rankings are. And very recently I was having a conversation and some of you were there with uh, Professor Vedyanathan um, who is now running a program on managing rural economics and rural marketing, uh, India Aninc. And um, he was talking about how there are companies like Parag Dairy and you know Syntex and, and what have you who are refusing to hire from the bigger B school and, and B schools and hire um, only from uh, programs that teach what it is to sell in India or to do business in India. So I think increasingly uh, people that really know how things work uh, are beginning to realize that rankings are essentially a managed exercise. Um, and hopefully uh, the percentage of people that fall for this kind of a narrative that you know Shanghai University Singhua is at number one and you know IITs are nowhere on the list. That narrative I can already see dying because people are taking decisions out of, outside of one data point which is what Times of India says or QS says or whatever. So, there are two concurrent issues to be recognized. One is the rankings could be a ranking as Makaran put it. But we also know the state of the education system in the country. So we can't be living in denial about it. So I think we need to recognize the fact that, I mean, so as he, as he put in his great heritage has to be a spur for reforms, but uh, we can't dismiss the rankings and rackets and say and continue with what we have been doing, which obviously we see, otherwise why would the students be coating with their feet and money and leaving the country, right? So. Uh, on the theme of Sanskrit, uh, it is quite ironic that in 1900, the University of Tokyo introduced Sanskrit and Kavi. Kavi is the is the language that predated Javanese. So as Sanskrit is to the Indian languages, Kavi is to the languages of Indonesia. So it, uh, the University of Tokyo introduced the study of Sanskrit and Kavi into its curriculum. And uh, it makes total sense for India to do the same. I mean, essentially, Kavi is Indian heritage or Indic um, uh, Indic heritage uh, writ large in Southeast Asia, uh, whether it's Malay or, or Thai. I mean, you know, the, the the sister of the of the king of Thailand is a Sanskrit scholar. Uh, she is uh, uh, she is a tremendous Sanskrit scholar. Uh, king Vajirabhut, King Rama the fifth, was uh, a tremendous Sanskrit scholar as well. So. Uh, we have Sanskrit scholars in our neighborhood, uh, but in our own country. I mean, you know, I am ashamed to say I have never studied a word of Sanskrit. Uh, I went to an ICSE school like you, and uh, I have the misfortune, the misfortune of not knowing any Sanskrit. And uh, so now the point is that you know we have an entire generation that is cut off from uh, the basic heritage, uh, and hopefully we're not going to lose another generation. Uh, because of uh, uh, the, the breaking of the string and the and the spreading of the pearls. Capturing, 
disagree with you but funding is not a problem at all in India anywhere in India first of all and secondly you know dealing with the government is like the kiss of death <laughs> it's the poison chalice you know and you know, honestly because there's you know there's not enough smart people who can think through things and whatever they take up it's done in a very ham-handed way See, even the way Sanskrit is taught is so ineffective. It's really taught like a dead language. And this is what I want to come back to. We have to deal with living heritage, not dead heritage. And uh, so this is, so we have to rethink so many things. And even in terms of uh, these ranking issues, you know, the fact is that, you know, so there's an international, so to speak, racket, and then there's a domestic racket. You know, so there are these two intertwining rackets. And now what, what do we do? Like the government says, okay, let's set up our own, you know. And you know which is the top university? IISC. Indian Institute of Science is not a university. It only teaches science and engineering. So, so no, no, deemed or doomed is a different matter. It's not doomed. But all I'm trying to say is it's not a university. A university is, a, is an issue, you can call it a science and technology institute. In fact, the IITs are not universities. And I told the man who was in charge of this, I said, set up two different, uh, you know, whatever, lists. Yeah, don't mix it up. You have to understand a university is a place where all subjects are taught. Not only science. Not And you know, uh, I asked, uh, in fact, I asked uh, the really top people in government, the ministers, saying, look, what are you doing, you know, about humanities and uh, social studies and all these other areas, languages? He says, yes, yes, in IITs and engineering colleges, we are insisting that they do it. So you see, their, their whole approach is that it is only technical education which is a model of education. It is only engineering institutions which have to be encouraged and their great achievement is to allow a hostel address to register a startup. Well, wonderful. But if people don't know languages and you need deep knowledge of languages, that's when the whole culture opens up. And today we, know, we no longer know Forget about Sanskrit. We don't know our mother tongues properly. Not at all. In fact, uh, you know, even people who have great pride in their languages, like the Bengalis, we have one sitting here, their children cannot read Bankim or Tagore. They say it's Sadhu Bhasha. We don't understand. So we are becoming illiterate. And I'm sorry to say that we don't know English. Yeah? We, I mean, there are... 100 million Indians who have some knowledge of English. 
but you give them a sonnet of Shakespeare and say, please explain what it means, they don't know it. So, now without deep understanding of language and culture, there is no self-understanding. So there's no Atma Bodh. So when you have neither Atma Bodh nor Shatru Bodh, how can you survive as a civilization? And are our leaders really paying attention to this? No, they have other priorities. They think that if you fix the economy, if you fix the security, army and all, you're going to get a great, uh, you know, country. No, only, yes, yes too. But you have to think in an integral fashion because all aspects of society have to flourish. So I often tell my friends, yes, there's a Hindu resurgence, but is there a Hindu renaissance? I'm not sure. We had one in the 19th century, a truncated one. Some even call it a slave's renaissance because we were colonized. We are not colonized. This is our chance. And that's one reason why I'm supporting all these civil society initiatives. Because it's not the government, it's only when all of us take initiative. And as he said, you know, not complain in newspapers and ask somebody else to do things. You know, Swaraj is when we participate in our own amelioration and not wait for the government to do it. Uh, in this context, I'd like to mention that there are some small institutes which are really doing good work uh, at a school level. So, for example, in Bangalore this time, I came to know about an institute, a, a school called uh, Purna Pramati, I think. And what they're doing there is that they are teaching children Sanskrit, of course, and along with the other subjects. And um, we are actually teaching them the constitution of India and uh, in, the con uh, in the context of Dharma Shastras. So they are telling them about how, uh, what is there in the Dharma Shastras and then telling them, uh, comparing it with what is in the constitution. So there are these little institutes coming up and I want to see more of them. And, uh, before we, maybe there's another question, but I just want to add a footnote. You know, the other side of the problem is that some people who still have traditional expertise and knowledge. They're not well versed in, uh, you know, Western hermeneutics. So they don't know how to counter somebody like, say, Sheldon Pollock. Or, so, so, in other words, we need not just bi and multilingualism, but we need competence in the modern world to understand which is not easy because, you know, this modern world is based on a huge knowledge base which was acquired painstakingly since the Renaissance by the West, right? So I'm only saying that the, the challenge before us is really immense because we have to know ourselves but we have to also know the other well. And now we know neither. Oh, sorry, just quickly switching tracks. Um, so I've just been told there's good news for us and bad news for all of you guys that we have another 30 minutes if we, if we need this. So, so good. So if you could just keep the conversation going. Technology available today. 
And so let's say we were able to develop a corpus of money and we were able to get that plot of land, a certain plot of land, and we were able to establish a beautiful school and a university that embeds into it um, the history and the heritage of our past in the context of today's contemporary times. How, what would such a school and university be in its modus operandi? repeat the question a bit. I think it's a fantastic question and really links up with one of the topics that was uh, suggested about the new Nalanda. Though that's, how, uh, though that's not how it was framed. But in other words, how do we connect this educational heritage of India which uh, Sahanaji has written so eloquently and persuasively about with what we can do in the future? And uh, again, I'm afraid that uh, uh, the thinking on uh, about what needs to be done isn't really up to scratch, yeah. So, uh, you know, in other words, uh, it's all slapdash, you know. So one idea is to revive the old Nalanda. And let me tell you, it can't be done. I'll tell you why. Because that Nalanda depended on a different uh, system of patronage, a different social structure, a different notion of what was worth knowing, a different, it, it, it existed in a different world. And we all lament how, uh, you know, the story goes that Bakhtiar Khilji with 12 horsemen destroyed Nalanda, uh, or 17, the number varies, but it's equally ridiculous, you know. Now the question remains, why didn't all these learned monks uh, know that this was happening because they should have learned that hundreds of things were destroyed in Afghanistan, even further west. And so the destruction of Nalanda in the 13th century, before that, you know, Delhi had been destroyed. So, so what were they doing? Were they dreaming? So you see that it's not worth reviving for two reasons. One is the world has changed. But also that by the time it was destroyed, it wasn't really what it was, was, was at one time, which is people would come in from everywhere to learn. Because you see, what I'm trying to say is that knowledge which is not practical knowledge, ultimately, which doesn't even know how to defend itself or what its threats are, even knowledge about the other. How many books do you have where people have studied the Sharia or the Quran in Sanskrit or in Pali? None as far as I know hardly any deep engagement with the other. So what I'm trying to say is that we have to rethink this. And really my guide here is Sri Aurobindo. You see what Sri Aurobindo has answered this question in his wonderful book, The Secret of the Veda, which I recommend to everybody. Because you see the thing is, Sri Aurobindo is very hard to read. So people say you read the life divine and nobody, you'll give it up and you know, you read one chapter and you'll give it up. It's so difficult because he's engaging with the entire history of Western philosophy. You don't need that. But if you read the secret of the Veda, what he's really trying to say is that the Indian Renaissance is not a project we, where we want to go back to the ancient glory. The Indian Renaissance really means new creation. But what is the foundation of this new creation? The foundation of the new creation is the ancient wisdom. Because it is in India that, that's why I talked about the genetic heritage of humankind. Because that's the knowledge which can help us save ourselves and our habitat as a species. It is actually a wisdom tradition. And what's happened in modernity is that knowledge has got fragmented. 
so what we are what we are really looking for the new nalanda will have to in some ways show a competence in understanding what happened in the past not only in our land but in all the lands and as as we heard you see all of this was interconnected india china the so called indo china belt and further up to the west traces of which are lost but you know there are enough signs that the ancient hindus and the greeks were in dialogue in fact the such similarity philosophically in the schools you know and the speculations we also need to read plato from a different point of view not just from a rational point of view okay so what i'm simply saying is that uh, when we when we try to when we develop this kind of competence that the new nalanda will be a world class university where we combine what we know from our, our own classics as it were with all the state of the art knowledge in strategic fields including management for example engineering technology right and history social studies literature languages archaeology that would be the shape of a new nalanda maybe a school of medical sciences as well and i'm afraid that that vision uh, is still lacking and we need not one but we need dozens of them and the only way we can do it is through public private partnership so you know actually the privatization of indian higher education is a creeping phenomenon we are in denial it's not properly regulated and there are all kinds of outfits and operators you know and uh, so rather than you know letting this in through the back door we should do it properly legitimately you know have bodies which monitor and accredit these uh you know uh, institutions and actually scrap the ones which are phony and fake and taking people for a ride you know and then also make our public institutions government institutions accountable and not keep them uh you know as uh, you might say well as 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 uh, as a kind of sop to dissenters you know <laughs> where we subsidize uh, Uh, we we subsidize and promote uh you know a certain narrative or certain discourse to keep certain sections ideological and political occupied you know we should end such systems of entitlement and patronage and and ask these people to earn their own keep you know which can mean raising fees jnu fees are 20 rupees a month You can't buy a cup of tea for twenty rupees outside JNU. In JNU, it's still three rupees. You know, everything is subsidized. So, and the same people who complain have paid four and four, four and five thousand rupees a month as fees in school. They come to JNU, and then if you say raise the fees from twenty rupees to two thousand rupees, they'll they'll try and shut the university. They'll have a strike. So we'll have to bite the bullet. and iits raised the fees iims raised the fees and at the same time anybody who passes the exam who has the capacity to learn should get a loan should get so i mean we have to rethink and change everything and especially primary education you know nobody has thought enough about it in fact uh, if anyone in this room wants to find out how much money is spent by the government on primary education you'll find it very difficult to find out because there are no figures 
you see, you get central government figures which are about 60,000 crore rupees every year. Yes, but UP alone has spends about the same. So you add up the budgets on primary education, education budgets of all the 28 states of India and the Union territories and the government of India, it comes to an unimaginable figure. But where is it going? Schools still don't have blackboards. Teachers still don't teach but take salary. It's a racket. So we need accountability. We need another way to deliver this primary education. It is. It is. We have been doing it for 70 years. For 70 years we have failed to deliver primary education to India. Where every child can go to a good school and, and can learn and have some competitive uh, you know, capability and not worry and not wait for reservation when they go, uh, when they are 18 years old or 17 years old. So, I mean, it's a ridiculous situation that this money is going into some kind of black hole almost. So, now Rajasthan is trying out a public-private uh, you know, thing for education and I went there and I was talking to some people and they say that even what, anyhow, we won't go into the nitty-gritty, but it is worth thinking about, you know, for example, in Karnataka, uh, you know, the Azim Premji Foundation is deeply interested in education. And why can't the state uh, and, and uh, some, you know, uh, accountable entity like that get a pilot project to take care of education in a district and, and run it and see what the results are and then try to replicate it, you know. Uh, and so there is, there is much to be done is all I'm trying to say. No simple solutions. And the one last thing I wanted to say is that I think we need to start a variety of mechanisms uh, of funding uh, projects which are outside the government domain, you know, like the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. So we, we should start a India Culture Fund where you know, the Ambani's and the Adani's and others should contribute and make an independent board. We should start a Diaspora India Fund. Let it be Singapore-based. And you, you can decide what's important to you in terms of uh, interventions in India and also Indian heritage in this part of the world. So there's so much to be done. And everybody is willing to contribute. But uh, we, we need to, uh, as I said, uh, as Raj said, we need to gather traction and make and operationalize some of these ideas uh, and, and then have partnerships. And, and I hope that, I'm very optimistic. I hope good things will happen. Um, just in the interest of a healthy debate, am I allowed to rebut? <laughs> so, um, you know, the good thing about uh, you know, being Dharmic or Hindus, as all of us are, is you can have two differing viewpoints. Um, but still be on the same side. Now, I personally believe one of our big challenges is that we, we, we live in a land of opportunities because of the if. Right? If we have land, if we have a corpus, if we have the teachers, if we have the vision, if we have the intent. Now, because we are chasing a dream which has not been obtained for 70 years, we miss out on a lot else that could be done um, and it is not being done because we, it's not big enough, cool enough, you know, if I could say sexy enough. Um, so therefore what I say in all my talks is think small. It's, it's contrarian, but, but think small. Think in terms of what change you want to see 
and do whatever you can to bring that change about. Um, you know, Professor Asher here figured that uh, you know the whole you know pension reform process in India was beyond repair. He said, "Okay, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to write about it." And there's loads of empirical research. You know, there's loads of work he's done. Van here keeps publishing a lot of uh, papers and content around how India's economy should be run from a macro perspective. It doesn't matter whether Rurijit Patel will read it or not and call him to thank him for it. Right? He he figures he needs to do something for it and he's doing it. Uh, yeah, Upadhyayji is sitting there. I mean, he runs an organization here that teaches 4,000 that teaches Hindi to 4,000 children. Right? So he wasn't waiting for that, you know, land and school and permissions and whatever. But so I think there's 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 a there's something to be said about uh, you know the final solution, not in the context of the Nazi uh, meaning or whatever. There's something to be said about an ideal state and getting there, and there's also something to be said about um, taking ownership to bring about whatever you think needs to happen. Uh, because one of the negative spirals I see a lot of Indians going down, and and I think the whole um, you know the whole Kejriwal in India against corruption thing has legitimized it is. Uh, glorifying whining, right? So we, you know, somebody who is willing to hit a like on Facebook or walk up with a candle to, you know, Jantar Mantar is considered to be a contributor and an activist. Um, and, and that's kind of where it ends, right? I mean, to me, the real activist is somebody that, you know, you and I don't even know about who's, who's working in an interior village in Riva and making sure that 23 children go to school uh, because they're fathers were killed by, I mean, there's a Dr. Khandekar, I mean, you should Google him up, right? He funds 23 children going to school because their parents were killed by Naxalites. To me, that's a bigger hero than, you know, not Javadekarji specifically, than an HRD minister, as an example. Right? So, there's, there's Ramya as well, sorry, yeah. So, sorry, I, I didn't want this to be a very gender, yeah, but, you know, Ramya is again a great example, right? So, I think... Uh, yeah, so I, I take a very different view here, which is we should be thinking small, we should be thinking action rather than kind of vision. And that's something that will really change the country from the grassroots. You know, I was expecting a really serious uh, disagreement, but there is none. There is none because you can do both. You can do micro and macro. No, but the really important thing, what he said, is that activism is not just going out and protesting. Because that is how, you know, in fact, this morning in the, in the New York Times, I was reading about, uh, about this, uh, the leading African-American writer today. His name is Coates. Tuniti Coates, Tuhiti Coates, I mean, yeah? So that they said, oh, oh, many people said, oh, you're not an activist. But what is activism? So I think you're absolutely right that just going out and being you know, anti-government or anti-state or anti-Narmada or anti-this or anti-that is not the only kind of activism. There's a whole constructive activism that we have to highlight. That's number one. And I think you should, I completely agree, take ownership for something, make a change, make a difference. But I don't think, I'm not saying you should wait, but I'm saying that, you know, the scale of the challenge is so enormous that the thinking that needs to go in should be commensurate with that challenge. 
So we have to do all kinds of things. That's what I'm saying. So I, I, you know, there are two things that I talk about, which is first is the intermedial hermeneutics, which is that you always, you know, try and not polarize, but uh, you try to find a way from reductive extremes. But the intermediality, which can also be remedial, right, is only the first step. The, the next step is integrational or integrative hermeneutics. That is a way of interpreting the world or understanding the world or exploring the world or analyzing the world, which can bring in knowledge from multiple domains in order to make a difference. Because the problems of our world today are too complex and they're not national or regional or linguistic or communal. They're, they're all linked up. And I'll just end by saying that, look, to apply your micro-thinking. Now, here's a book called The Educational Heritage of Ancient India. Why shouldn't we trigger a series? Maybe Sanaji herself uh, can write the next book. I mean, this, this calls for a series, you know, from the educational heritage of ancient India. We can have something else. Water conservation in ancient India, you know. Things like, because that's, you're talking about water. But, I mean, we need a bunch of such books. So, if, you know, this is the micro thing. If you can spur a series, and gradually, you know, we'll get a picture of ancient India, which is not skewed or limited, you know, by the kind of ideological or whatever lenses or prisms in which we find ourselves so trapped in today's time. Thank you. So I just uh, wanted to say something about the, uh, yeah, that's yours, that's yours. Um, so uh, with IHAR, we were reviewing the textbooks of uh, Telangana. Recently, we went through the uh, class 6, 7, 8, uh, 9 textbooks. And uh, I think some of the, so the problem starts right from school. Uh, so we, uh, we were just looking at, you know, how these, uh, what are these uh, books uh, telling about Indian history? But then we found many other interesting things, which could be the reason for what India uh, is like today. Uh, so the children are being, it was like a training manual for, uh, uh, for Maoists, you could say, or Naxalites. Because the, the, the children, really, because the children are told uh, that, you know, the industrialists are, uh, are making money and then the, the, the workers are not uh, are being, uh, you know, the, the whole, the way it has been presented is that industry is bad. So that was an eye-opener. So we realized that students, children are all learning that, you know, the government needs to provide everything to the people, health, all. We saw 6th, 7th, 8th and ninth that we have uh, reviewed and uh, we have also made some suggestions, but I don't know if the, they'll be adopted. But we have certainly started the debate. The, there's a big debate going on right now after we sent our recommendations. So, so the thing is that um, you know, the children are, are taught that there are the, the, the industries all over the country, they are actually exploiting people. And so the whole, the examples given us here is an industry and this is what's happening. It's spoiling the environment, it is uh, harming the people and yet we have these industries. So the child will go away thinking that, you know, uh, the industries are bad. Yeah, everybody, somebody, some money comes from somewhere and then it's given out to everybody as doles. So our textbooks are a big part of the problem and probably are, the, are causing the, uh, the situation. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, just a footnote uh, in, on, you know, in, uh, on Twitter, there was a uh, whole thing about a textbook in Karnataka where they said the starvation in India is because of yagyans. You see, because you're putting in 
uh, ghee and maybe a little bit of rice or whatever the ahuti is, can you imagine now that, okay, it's wow because it's ridiculous, but <laughs> apart from that, that you see the, re, the way it works, since I'm a teacher, then there'll be a question, how did starvation in India start? And the right answer will be because of the yagyas. And that is how, that is the worst. So when somebody says, with the Telangana textbook, they'll say, you know, what is the cause for uh, poverty in India? Then the guy will have to, the student will have to write, industrialization is the cause. So I'm saying that that is the bigger problem. It's not the wrong things in the textbooks, but then how they get reinforced and how the marks get linked up. So again, there's a, there's a, I mean, there must be text, there should be textbook auditing committees. And I know in Delhi there are people, Vipulji is involved in one of them. But also what we should do is use digital media to put out all kinds of information. So, you know, what I'm saying is the kids, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm saying that we should have multiple sources of knowledge, not just these so-called authoritative and inauthentic textbooks, sir. So, you know, I'll take a couple of minutes to segue into a slightly different topic which ties in with what Sahanaji just said about, you know, naxalism and the view that's percolated into our education system. So one of the things that's been really disturbing me lately is probably your student Kanahiya Kumar. Right. So, you know, so, so the, the... It's supposed to be the alternative to Narendra Modi. Can you believe it? Absolutely. What delusions of grandeur. And, and, you know, it's those delusions that I'm coming to, you know. So, what is it um, that a guy like Sitaram Yechuri uh, can hold on to a parliamentary seat and be a flag bearer of anything despite not having done an honest days of work in his life? And I kind of kept tracking back, you know, like with Sanskrit, you say, go to the root. So I went back to kind of uh, the roots, uh, the, the root, which is Karl Marx himself. Karl Marx and found out a few things which just blew the heck out of me, right? One was Karl, and, and I, I just want you to think about the guy's personal value system. The guy did not attend his father's funeral because he was called for a talk at the university. So university invited him for a talk. His father didn't time his death too well. And then he says, look, my father's gone anyway, so I might as well just get my 20 minutes time here. Karl Marx had six children. He let three of his children die, Francesca, Guido and Eduardo, because he felt he should not spend money hospitalizing them. And it's the state's responsibility to hospitalize them. And it is the moral issue of the state if his children die. So three out of his six children died there. Um, three daughters grew up. Um, one died because of a drug overdose, one committed suicide and the last died mysteriously. Now here's the most fancy part. There, Karl Marx in his life never ever visited a factory or a mill or a mine. So here's a champion for workers' right who's a pure theorist, who has no other idea, I mean who, who has no first-hand experience or whatever. Right? And then you look at Sitaram Yechiru and say, hi, I mean, all he's doing is he's kind of following his idol. Right? And uh, it's very interesting, you know, Karl Marx is... Well, I mean, that's, that's another question. I mean, uh, you know, and uh, an interviewer asked uh, Karl Marx's mother, 
what do you what do you think of the, his new book Capital? And Karl Marx's mother um, is you know she said that I wish Karl would accumulate some capital instead of just talking about it. Right? And that's your mother who's supposed to love you unconditionally. Um, and when these guys become heroes um, for essentially people that decide everything from policy to educational content to everything, as a nation, India's kind of has a lot to worry about. So I think we need to wind up. So last question, last two small questions because you've had your hands raised. And I just returned back from Shanghai because I was on a two-year scholarship to study Chinese politics in English language. And uh, it was very interesting that the teachers who would teach uh, Chinese political system or say uh, international uh, Chinese international politics in uh, the Chinese international politics, the security and the strategy aspect would start right from Confucius yeah. uh, to uh, Mengxius, uh, the statecraft, and they also used to teach us that 36 stratagems and how they are being used even today in the army. So I saw a kind of narrative and because some of the teachers who taught us were western, uh, like from the west. So I realized that since China is growing, their narrative is also changing. Because the people who created their narrative before were the Europeans and the people in the United States. And now you see a Chinese version of inward looking version of their history, which is coming out, which is being taught to us in mainstream. Now I see a parallel because I'm a, I'm a student of comparative politics, so I study China and India. And I see that everybody is now talking about India's growth. So India is growing economically, but my the nagging question in my head is always, what about the narrative that India has lost? That as India grows, will we be able to get our narrative back like the, the way China has been able to get? And here I feel that it's a defeated purpose when you have the, the social sciences. See, because I studied uh, in IIT Madras, I studied in TISS. All these are, you know, younger brothers of JNU. To, to, to say because that's all that's because all the teachers come in from JNU and they're put in these places the same thing so when you're having the same kind of Western knowledge production taught you in social sciences how are you going to create history uh, sociology economics from the Indian perspective is something I wanted to know as India is growing how will we change this narrative about ourselves it's a very big question. So maybe, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's a very big question. I'll try and give a brief answer once we take the other question. Yes, only. Sorry, anybody? Anybody? about education methodology. Uh, for example, in uh, students used to sit on the floor, even if it is a graduate program or whatever program it is. Uh, I'm a chess coach. 90% of my classes I take on the floor. I make the students sit in Padmasana and I take. What coach? Chess coach. Chess. I teach chess. chess. Coach. 
So, uh, like that, for example, if needed, if some children's uh, oscillation is too much, I make them do Surnamaskara or Trataka, some kind of practices. So, my question to you is, what methodologies can we take from our Sanskriti or, or from our past and implement? Maybe in the schools we cannot implement this, but at our home or in our surroundings, <laughs> what can we take and implement, please? Since we are talking about the destruction of the Indian education system that happened over the last five, six, seven, eight, seven years, I would just like to bring it forward to now. And if any of you who have had a chance to interact with the bright bulbs in DGP would help us understand how, despite going through two educational ministers, HRD ministers, they have not got their heads around what RT is doing to destroy education in India, especially in those uh, trust-run schools. Apparently some 16,000 schools have shut down in Maharashtra alone. Yeah. How difficult is, is it to understand what's going on there? And I've heard red extracts of PSR Subramanian's report. To call it rubbish would be insert to rubbish. Mm -hmm. I've read extracts of that. Sure. So are you uh, The question or, or I would request uh, any one of you three to close the session by speaking about Karma Yoga, one, and Swadharma, because we talk, spoke about thinking small, and we also spoke about, you know, we have to do our part. So if you can close the comments with Karma Yoga and Swadharma, I'll, I'll be a very, very happy person. Okay, so quickly just to summarize, um, Maha here had a question about comparative histories and how narratives are viewed from a very local lens in China and a very western lens in India. Muraliji had a question about using um, ancient practices uh, in everyday living and in learning and, and so on and so forth and if we do see the values there. Um, in, in our case, I can personally vouch for what he's taught our children. Um, there's a question here on RTE which I'm sure all of us feel strongly about and on Karma Yoga. So if you could just, you know, Talk a bit about everything. So about China, yes, China is uh, is ahead of the game. So they know that they need to uh, integrate their past and the present uh, in order and uh, be competitive. How how to go about it? So they are totally. We have to learn from them, right? So uh, so it's not surprising that when you went there, they taught you right from uh, the ancient times till uh, today. Um, and, and you've seen what they've done, right? They have their own uh, social media, they've got their own uh, version of Google, everything. Yeah, so it's all tying up. They are... Right, right. So that's what, we have only just now woken up to uh, all this and uh, now we are, we are trying to bring back those lost narratives. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we, we have to, we can only learn from them uh, and see what we can do. And the other one uh, was about uh, Sanskrit, uh, you know, what can we bring back, what can we use from our past, uh, pre Surya Namaskara. No, I'm not going to, I mean, yoga and all we all know. The methodology. See, one of the things which I noticed was the holistic learning that was there in uh, ancient times. So you see, uh, when I see that uh, there was no separate subject called environmental management, water treatment, no. It was all a part of every subject. So uh, whether they were, it was chemistry, whether it was uh, engineering, whatever subject was uh, taught in those days, took care of the environment. It was uh, already conditioned into the students. So, the, so no, like today, you know, we have to go and separately study environmental management. 
Whereas in those days, you know, if they were teaching a subject, they would make sure that nature is also taken into consideration. The, the flora and the fauna, the, you know, the, the people, everything. It was a very holistic uh, uh, way of learning and teaching in those days. I think that we need to bring back if we can. Uh, but of course, in those days, uh, I think language was very much, uh, very important. So uh, as important as science was language. So people were well versed in uh, a couple of languages and then they would also be good in mathematics and uh, other subjects. That also we need to bring back. Today you see in India, for example, it's, if it's an IIT, it's going to focus mainly on technology, on engineering, right? If it's, um, it's St. Stephen's, then it's going to be more of humanities. That was not the case. So in olden times, there was, if you see Nalanda, what we have to learn from Nalanda is the scale. It was, there were like 8,500 students and 1,500 teachers. Just see the scale at that time. And it was very interdisciplinary. So since it's a huge campus and they're all uh, studying different subjects and they're meeting every day, so they had a very interdisciplinary approach, which we don't have today. We're all in our silos where people are studying different subjects. They're not as interdisciplinary as those days. That's also something we could learn. No, I completely agree, in fact. Uh, but you know, there are even subtler dimensions because Apparently, the oldest recorded academy, historically recorded or dateable, uh, is traced back to the Chandogya Upanishad, where Aruni Uddalak and Shvetaketu, there's a famous dialogue. So he was, he's the oldest recorded teacher in history, about say, eight, 750 before the current era. And there were already academies. But you know, we shouldn't forget that uh, in that dialogue, He'd been to, you know, uh, and you have that example in your book as well, how he went and studied everywhere and then the father said, look, what did you learn? But the point was also Atma Vidya. It's something we don't know what it is, what we, you know, how it is to be inculcated, why it is the highest value. And uh, so, you know, we, modernity has bracketed off that entire aspect of human aspiration, you know, which is to find out not only who we are, where we come from, but, you know, what is the, what is the solution to the uh, sort of uh, unsolvable riddles of human existence, which include death, suffering, uh, and, uh, and violence, to name a few. So I'm saying that obviously uh, a new Nalanda would also have or, or also think at least about Atma Vidya, without which, you know, what is this, what is the base of our entire system? What is it that makes us different? Anyhow, but we leave that aside. Now I'll come back to more mundane matters. You see the decolonization of the Indian mind and the Indian educational system has not been fully accomplished, right? So it's an ongoing process, but here, we have to understand how we should differ from the Chinese. The Chinese are, are not and should not be our model, nor should the West be. You know, the important thing is that we have learned, relearned, I should say, critical thinking from the West. We already had it, but we lost it. We had it, you know, in all our, our classical traditions, you know, Right up to, I would say, the 11th century, it was really robust. 
you know, after Abhinav Gupta, then you know what happened afterwards. But the, that ability to question and think critically, I'm not sure the Chinese have it. They think programmatically. So we should not become like that. We should follow our own trajectory. I'm not sure critical thinking is something that other civilizations have, the Arabs. So actually, Raja Rao, who was very politically incorrect, so he told me, only the Greeks and the Hindus knew how to think. Nobody else has a tradition of analytical thinking or speculative thinking. It's practical thinking and it has to do with language. If, you, if your language is a pictographic language, you can't do a lot of abstract thinking. You know, there's a lot of stuff behind this. So, in a sense, these two branches of the old Indo-European family, you know, which have survived to modern times, and in a way, we are uncontaminated by Abrahamic theology, which makes us better because they had to destroy that before modern science could come up. Because it's that theology which is against critical thinking. And we talk so much about Islamic civilization, but right up to Al-Ghazali, they were, they were critical there. And then he said, no, it's only by faith, you know. And you have that in, in Christianity as well, okay. That, uh, no, I mean, they had critical thinking. They got some of it from, from uh, the ancient Greeks, also from the Indians. But then after a while, there was a kind of closing of the mind. So my point, my, my response is that this revival should not, Hindu revival should not, as it were, jettison critical thinking and become another version of programmatic thinking where someone gives the party line and you say, ah, Kraman, and then the troll army is unleashed. You know? Because this will be damaging to the civilization in the long run. So, uh, I mean, so we have to be very conscious of that dimension of, of acquiring power as well, okay? Now, to come back to your point, none of us here could speak on behalf of any party or the government as far as I can tell. So you'll have to ask them, why do they do what they do? It's a puzzle, you know? And even when you ask them, you don't get clear answers. But I must say one thing that it's much more than we think. There are very smart people there, and they're very strategic. This is what I've learned, because if you think that they're doing it because they're not smart, I don't agree. I mean, there are many smart people, and they're thinking about all these things you're talking about. And I, I, but I have no answer to that. As to methodology, I must say, I'm all for a multiplicity of methodologies, right? So that I don't think that like the Surya Namaskar or Padmasana is the panacea. I'm all for it. I do it myself. I'm a great devotee of Surya Namaskar as well as of Padmasana. But I'm not for imposing, okay? I'm not for saying that, okay, these acupressure centers are touched and therefore something. You know, it's not true. You do Padmasana and you're not going to produce a Nobel Prize. I mean, at least I don't see a correlation as yet. And many Nobel Prize winners haven't been unconscious Padmasana followers either. So I'm just making a point. Not that a Nobel Prize is the acme of human achievement either. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, look, there are real achievements and the cause and effect sometimes that we uh, ascribe is very simplistic. So I'm saying that, you know, like Gandhian. I mean, being a Gandhian is not always wearing khadi and spinning, okay? 
the, the, that charkha was a symbol and today khadi is subsidized. So, you know, it's not khadi anymore that's not self-sufficient and supporting. And most of it is not khadi, it's polyvastra, you know. So, what, so, these are the paradoxes of India. So, we need multiple methodologies and, there was, uh, the, and karma yoga. See, I must say one thing, you know, Vinayakundi, that, uh, uh, that, you know, Swadharma by very, by its very definition is only something you can discover. Swadharma, who can tell you what your Swadharma is, right? As to Karma Yoga, you had a good, uh, you know, uh, example here. Stand up and do what you're supposed to. But for me, Karma Yoga simply means doing your Kartavya. Because, you know, your, you know, things and you don't have to... Uh, you have to, and, uh, you know, because you see, it will be put in front of you. You don't have to look for it. It's there every day, including <coughs> the shaucha that we heard about, you know. So, it really is an unfolding. And uh, once you start doing, you know, as Carlyle said, what is nearest to you, then you'll see the whole thing opening up, you know. And then you realize that the, that the individual and the collective are not separate at all. That's the butterfly effect and the micro, macro. These are, these are false binaries, you know, that uh, you are the center of the universe, both literally and figuratively. And when you align yourself with the cosmic intelligence and cosmic harmony, everything changes. That's all there is to it. I think that's a good note on which to... Wait. <laughs> So I got the feeling I was sitting next to a guru right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just a quick last comment on on the karma yoga thing. RT is a political uh, decision, so I won't get into it. Um, you know, if, if you if you look at what, um, for lack of better nomenclature, the left wing has been able to achieve, achieve. they've been able to create Romila Thapars which is essentially a self-appointed intellectual and Shela Rasheed, Rashid, who is a self-appointed spokesperson. Yeah, sure. But, but that's, that's basically what the left has been able to create, right? What, what our side has as an alternative, to me, the delta or the opportunities, only karma yoga or delivery or change or, or whatever else. I personally feel that institutionalizing the concept of karma yoga is not just preferred but imperative because unless we as a group are able to do that, we will have our own Romila Thapars and our own Shaila Rashids who will shriek as much, who will intervene in curriculum as much except that they speak our language. So what I would like to see coming out of you know this group or whatever effort like-minded people take is to say that, look, I will do my, I will think small, do my own bit, but I will also do my bit around institutionalizing the concept of karma yoga, because that by definition is what, you know, the left-wingers cannot replicate or cannot achieve, because, you know, uh, they need to sit in their ivory towers with the air conditioner on, with the media van outside. Um, so hopefully we will, you know, uh, and, and for example, the work on Sanskrit that you are doing, right, all of these should be uh, showcased more to let people know what they are able to achieve and deliver for, you know, their own communities, their own nation. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, hopefully our kids will live in a much 
more improved India, which is closer to the India of 2000 years back than it is to the India of 50 years back. On that note, Maha, would you like to start winding up? I don't think I have anything more to add to this fascinating discussion except that heritage as we know is not something that is nostalgia or something to be put in the shelf but something which is living and the knowledge, the acknowledgement of which needs to come back into our psyche and our ethos so that we start living, living that kind of a life. And this event is just a start, I believe, the first IBC event here. And for that, I need to thank few people. And it starts with Harikiranji because he is the reason why all of us have gathered here. So, Romba Nandri, Harikiranji. Uh, I also would like to thank Sahanaji, Paranjpeji, uh, and Anunadji for being the great panel uh, today and answering all our questions with so much of patience and so much of detail. Uh, to uh, the dignitaries, the special invitees who have come this far and uh, listened to what all of us had to say. And last but not the least, uh, Myra's for providing us the space, uh, good samosas, chai, and the volunteers, uh, a big round of applause for all the volunteers. I won't name them, but they know who they are, and it's because of them that this program was possible. So thank you so much.